The same people who are telling us we need to believe women, believe women, are also telling women that they don't know what they're talking about when they say they support Brett Kavanaugh or they're voting Republican or they oppose the left or they just don't agree with the left on certain issues. They want to believe women except for when it comes to acknowledging their chosen values, their chosen priorities, and their chosen politics. The hypocrisy knows no bounds. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. You can check out the show from last night where I wasn't even here. We had producer Brad Omland taking the host seat and with him was Max Reimer co-hosting and they had a rip-roaring good time. They had the Students for Liberty in here uh, to talk about, I I think it, it felt like it got a little bit derailed in terms of what the intention was versus the direction it ended up going. I wonder why. <laughs> and we'll get into that a little bit later in the program in terms of the, the topic came up of, you know, how just how viable this notion of libertarians trying to forge coalitions with leftists on campus and generally in the culture and in politics, how viable that idea really is and how tolerant people really are of libertarians and why. And it was a fascinating conversation. You should go back and listen to it. And uh, we'll touch back on it a little bit here later tonight. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us if you feel so inclined. Brad Omland back on the other side of the glass to take your calls and produce the show this evening. Also in studio with us, Allie Eichmann. Now, do you, what's your? What do we call you now? I am an activist and consultant, I guess, right now. Consultant, that's a good one. Yeah. You got business cards that say that? I do actually. Excellent. Well, then it's true. <laughs> if you got a business card that makes it true, I don't think that's how that works. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> Allie Eichmann, uh, the the former chair of the. Uh, young Republicans here in the state of Minnesota and longtime Republican activist. If you know her on social media, you see her talking about door knocking and organizing and phone banking all the time. Yeah. One of the most active people I know of uh, in the Republican Party. And I'm not I'm not kidding. I'm not just talking you up here. If your social media is any indication, certainly you're leveraging that particular platform better than anybody else I know in the party. So thank you. Good for you. <laughs> now, of course, the the reason why I wanted to have you in here tonight, you had a tweet, speaking of social media, <laughs> that caught my attention. That and, always gets me in trouble. <laughs> And and it prompted me to ask you to come in tonight to respond to everything and to offer the female perspective mm-hmm. on everything that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks with the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation and what it has revealed about the state of our politics, the state of the culture, and the state of the Democratic Party and where we are with, with the left right now. And I'm I'm quoting from memory, paraphrasing, but your tweet was something to the effect of, I think toxic masculinity is when liberal men scream at me about how I'm supposed to think as a woman. 
Yes. But it was something to that effect. Yeah, I think I, I framed it a little bit more clever, but... <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> no, but that's... Uh, it, Especially since the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, during the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, um, I personally, and I've seen this with other female Republicans, uh, we're being yelled at in some cases or scolded right. by especially liberal men. And, and that, funny how that works? Yeah. It's kind of like when I'm scolded by liberal white people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's funny how that works. And we're scolded by I've been I've been personally scolded by liberal men and I've seen other people uh Republican women scolded by liberal men that we're a traitor to our gender yep. that um I am somehow uh not an advocate for women. Right. Right. <laughs> Which <laughs> Because I have a different opinion than that. That's correct. Which is just, it's, it's odd. Like the, your prim, what's your premise then? And you're speaking to them. Yeah. Is your premise then that you're, you're just self loathing, that you're just self hating or that you're dumb? Like what? I think it's both. I think it's both. I mean, you saw this also directed at Susan Collins. Right. Uh, and I think it's a combination of both that somehow we don't respect other women and we don't respect ourselves. Mm hmm. So that's why we disagree with them, but also we're dumb and we don't know the issues. It seems like an odd play when your your goal, first of all, when the entire premise that you're operating under is how we need to respect women and yeah. we need to believe women and we need to take, we need to respect the lived experiences of women mm-hmm. and what have you. You're clearly not doing that when it turns out that that lived experience runs counter to your political narrative. But then also it's bizarre just from a political standpoint when your objective is to actually win people over to your cause. I don't know how much yelling at them about how dumb they are is really going to. I don't I don't think the the random Twitter warriors or even people that I see in general and people like at the protests and that sort of stuff. I don't think they're thinking about winning people to their cause. I think they're angry and they're channeling that immediately. And they're thinking about the short term goals that they're angry and they need to vent. So. I hear that, and I'm sure that is true. Mm-hmm. What concerns me, though, because if that's all it was, I would be content to dismiss mm-hmm. it and write it off as that, as an, an cathartic emotional reaction to to the immediate circumstances. You lost a big political battle, and so you're you're butt hurt about it. I I get that, but it seems as though there's a a deliberate and intentional and pre planned. And and purposefully executed narrative from on high within institutions, whether you're yeah. talking about universities or you're talking about the Democratic Party or you're talking about the media, whereby they're all on board with this notion as well. Yeah, and I think uh, I think the the organized left, so uh, the elected officials on the left, you see them wielding this anger. I mean, I think Eric Holder was the one who said it today. There was a video that came out that he said, "When they go low, we kick them." <laughs> He said, I, like, I, I missed that one. That came out today. Uh, okay. And when they go low, we kick them. Yeah. Uh, so they're and we, we've seen this from multiple leaders on the left okay. that they're advocating for some sort of violence to people that they disagree with because right. uh, they're it's it's very intentional from those elected officials. I think a lot of the activists that you see at the protests are people who have concerns and have angers and frustrations and they're being um, 
fanned, their anger is being fanned by these elected officials and take it advantage of. And then they end up exaggerating it to a point that we see these violent acts. So let's explore exactly what it is that you're being told makes you a gender traitor. Uh, and and we haven't talked before. I have no idea what your answer to this question is going to be. <laughs> but I, I'm interested in hearing, and we got plenty of time for you to flesh this out. I'm interested in your kind of reaction, your lived experience of going through the past couple of weeks and watching this Kavanaugh hearing play out. What's your take in terms of what happened, how it happened, and sort of lessons learned coming out of it? Yeah, so, I mean, going into the hearing, I was very meh on Kavanaugh. I mean, I am a little bit more libertarian, so I had some concerns about different things. Um, He just wasn't a super exciting candidate for the, the Supreme Court position, but I wasn't gonna fight anyone on it um and then as soon as this sort of this stuff came out going into the testimonies i was on uh dr ford's side uh i was because as a young female who's been in political circles for years uh you see the worst you experience some really bad stuff um, you, 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 you're, cause there's so many egos involved in politics, especially, but across the board, young women and women across, like for years, decades, forever. Uh, if you talk to most of the women in your life, you'll probably hear some horrible stories, whether they were direct or indirect. Um, so when the Christine Ford allegations came out, I was more, my visceral reaction, my immediate reaction was to be on her side. Um, and then more information started coming out. The testimonies happen, the FBI investigation eventually, but really before the S- FBI investigation, I kind of um, shifted more to believe Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and it wasn't that I don't believe Christine Ford. I think something happened to her. And I know that that's, that's a whole nother thing, whether people believe her statements or not, or if anything happened. Um, but I think something happened to her. And um, I don't think in the case of Brett Kavanaugh that she had any details or there were no corroboration. I think that maybe she went through something, but it wasn't Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and what made me angry and so much at the end of it that I wanted him confirmed was how the Democrats handled this entire situation. Um, I'm act- I became livid because the fact that Diane Feinstein held on to this information for six weeks without telling the rest of the Judiciary Committee, it was a political move. Um, and then the fact that Christine Ford's name was leaked to the press, only, only a few people had her information, knew who she was. Right. And it was... In Feinstein's office and in the congressional person's office um, and Christine Ford's lawyers. And the fact that that was leaked, all of this is you're using this woman's trauma for political gain. Right. And that's infuriating. Yeah. And I feel like that's how a lot of women on the right mm-hmm. um, were all over the place with who we believe, how much we believe them in this case. But what galvanizes us as a voting base uh republican women is that 
we're we're mad that the left tells us what we should believe and if we don't fall in line we get yelled at or we get told we're bad women right um and then they use us they say we're they're advocates for us and then they use us for for votes for right. political talking right. points yeah, as you may or may not be aware, I recently went for, you may recall in 2016, I was a hard Trump critic, to put, yeah. it, to put it lightly. Uh, probably the, the most vocal one in the, within the Republican Party of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And as of last week, I believe it was, I made the decision to go out and buy the Make America Great Again hand oh, that you see across the studio there. and In a very dramatic fashion. In very dramatic fashion. <laughs> Because uh, it is a big deal in terms of where I've been versus where I am. And I was motivated in a by much of what you're saying now, that, mm-hmm. that sense of, look, the the Democrats and the liberals you know, mm-hmm. will we'll set the left aside. I, I want to make this distinction between the hard left, which is dominant with the Democratic Party right now. But there are these kind of like good faith liberals that exist uh, within the Democratic Party and around the Democratic Party and what have you, people who who ha- just disagree with us on where the center ought to lie and who who are willing to debate and don't want mm-hmm. to see us destroyed and respect our our opinions and are willing to let us coexist and what have you. They're fewer in number than they've ever been in the past, but they do exist. The, they would have the opportunity to make headway in this political moment in the past two years since the election of Donald Trump they would have been able to shift the pendulum in their direction if they had been even remotely reasonable in terms of their their response to the the thing the things that they've seen mm-hmm. and and their advocacy for their ideas when you, when you come at me you know we'll use my minority status when you when you come at me with the experience of black people in the United States of America and what it's like to be black and the ways in which the, the drug war, for instance, has had a disproportionate impact or a disparate impact is the term they use mm-hmm. on on people of color. That's that's a, a message and a premise that lays a foundation upon which we can build some sort of common ground and we can come to, to similar ideas. And, and, you know, you had Jason Lewis here in Minnesota mm-hmm. who put forward some criminal justice reform ideas. There, there have been ideas within the legislature here that have been bipartisan in nature in terms of reforming the way that we look at criminal justice and what have you. There's opportunity there, but when you're coming at me with the attitude that you describe, mm-hmm. where it's, well, you're an idiot because you're not a leftist. You're an idiot because you don't agree with us on Brett Kavanaugh or Donald Trump or whatever the case may be, and you're a race traitor or you're a gender traitor or whatever the case may be. Like, at that point, I don't care. Listen, the the Republicans could be legitimately racist and they would still be better than you, right? Because at least they aren't telling me that I can't have my own thoughts, that I can't hold my own values, that I can't pursue my own ends. Mm -hmm. You are. You're telling me that you want to live in a world where you get to dictate to me how I get to be and how I get to operate and what I get to think. Well, and what I've seen um, as a woman navigating politics and having opinions semi-publicly on politics is in the GOP all of the amazing women that I've met they're on any issue it's a spectrum of beliefs um on any candidate it's a spectrum of support because they're individuals yeah and it's supported right so I'm a little bit more libertarian libertarian leaning 
I'm supported and encouraged within the GOP, not just by women, right. but by men. Right. Um, and then I see in the Democrat Party right now is if you aren't checking off the boxes as a strong progressive. Right. Social justice warrior. You're going to. Yeah. You don't get that support. Right. You get yelled at more frequently. Yeah. 651-989-5855. Allie Eichmann in studio with us talking about what it's like to be a political minority nowadays under assault by the Democrats against the prevailing narrative. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us this evening. In studio, we have Allie Eichmann, female Republican, which yeah. apparently isn't supposed to happen right now. I've been told that the Republican Party has lost women. This was the headline of more than one op-ed over the yes. past few days. So I, how did you get here? Who are you? Are you lying? <laughs> I mean, I've been involved in the GOP, so you can't get rid of me, or it's going to be very hard to get rid of me. Um, I've invested. Um, no, but it's really interesting because with all the Kavanaugh hearing everything, um, everything that you hear on the mainstream media is that this is the nail in the coffin. This is what's going to lose the GOP all of the women voters and um i know that i mentioned to you npr they came out npr pbs they came out with um a study uh poll the other day where they pulled people in july and they pulled people on monday after the confirmation hearing um on their enthusiasm regards to the midterm elections and the two biggest groups with the most swings were Democrat women and Republican women. Everyone else st- stayed relatively the same between those months. And Democrat women lost about 10 points in enthusiasm after the Kavanaugh hearing. So they're not as excited or uh, likely to vote in. Interesting. Yeah. In November. And then Republican women gained 14 points wow. in enthusiasm. So they were slightly behind. Uh, Democrat women before, and now they're uh, like, I think they're four points ahead. I mean, that goes completely counter that narrative because yep. the, the the notion that the Democrats are putting forward of you've lost women now, we're, now let's take this anger and let's take it to the polls and let's, you know, give them what for. It seems as though much like you described in, in our conversation during the first segment, that the reaction from women across the board has been, this isn't how you proceed. Like, if you legitimately care about these stories, this isn't how you react. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm I, not sure. I, I can't say with certainty what caused the right. swing sure. in this, obviously. Right. But um, I've heard from uh, Democrat female friends of mine who saw the process play out. Some of them are mad at how Democrats handled it. Right. Many are also angry that despite everything the process quote-unquote didn't work for them so there's two main reasons why they're losing faith in whoever we elect the cycle it doesn't matter so it's a little bit of part of it is disgust at the process but the other part of it is disappointment and not actually working yes 
Right. And then Republican women on the other side, um, it's a 14-point swing. That's right. incredible. Yeah. In, it was in July and then Monday. So that's mm-hmm. not a long period of time. Um, and they... And a, what I've seen from the Republican women that I know, um, I know someone from every perspective when it comes to Kavanaugh. There are people who didn't like him, still don't like him. There are people who loved him and still love him. It's all across the board. But what I'm seeing is the people who didn't like him to begin with still didn't like him. It's not affecting their enthusiasm about the election. What's It's happening for people like me who kind of were ambivalent, Mm -hmm. and now we're seeing that what the Democrats did to him and how they manipulated so many people Mm -hmm. for political gamesmanship. So we're seeing that, and that's making me angry. And I'm already involved, but I'm seeing other individuals and friends of mine who are not involved, who are getting angry and getting involved. Yeah, I mean, going back to caucuses of this year mm-hmm. i was extraordinarily ambivalent i mean the i i wasn't interested in for the first time since 2008 wasn't interested in becoming a delegate wasn't interested in moving forward through the convention process mm-hmm. to me there's just i just didn't see the point didn't care wasn't activated at all mm-hmm. now i am enthusiastic to go there in november to go to the polls and to participate because something is actually at stake well and the thing is the the Democrats completely misstepped. Yeah. They they thought that this would galvanize the left. It's not. It's right. galvanizing the right. That's right. Because we went and this you see this every election cycle where someone who won the last cycle wh- what what do we have to fight for? We're winning. Right. It, it it's hard to get everyone on the same page and really fight and move forward even if there's uh, doom impending doom and what we're seeing this cycle because of the kavanaugh hearing the timing of the kavanaugh hearing and everything that happened Uh is that the right is has a reason to fight they're irritated and they're angry and they're going to show up at polls yeah it's it's amazing like how do you screw this up how do you screw up being the party out of power in a (laughs) midterm election because it's so there's such an inherent advantage for you because you you're not in power so you can just blame everything that's not going well on the establishment that's currently in there well it's because the people that they have in charge in the democrat party are people who are so out of touch with the average person right they have people like keith ellison yeah who on policy is radical his personal life is not what i think most people go through sure uh, so we're seeing that the people that they're allowing to lead the party are v- are very out of touch. They're atypical from yeah. where most people find themselves. 651-989-5855. Allie Eichmann in studio with us tonight. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, get to the important topic the important news the political views of taylor swift yes we've got ali eichmann in studio to go through it with us closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm streaming at twincitiesnewstalk.com and your iHeartRadio app we're here 9 to 11 weeknights 
Appreciate you tuning in. Go check out our Facebook page, Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Just search for it in the Facebook search box. Like the page. Set yourself to be notified when we post things, and then you, too, can just have a better life as a result. (laughs) 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omland taking the calls and producing the show. So, of course, you know, there's there's an opinion piece over here at the Daily Beast responding to Taylor Swift's political musings. And apparently this was educational for me reading this because I, I did not realize that apparently Taylor Swift holds some sort of distinction within neo-Nazi circles as being a modern day, like, model of what Aryan purity is. That's dumb. <laughs> I, it's, it's odd to me that. Taylor Swift is their choice for what is supposed to represent the, yes. the ideal, but I guess that's how they think. And so this starts She's off. She's a cat person. How is that ideal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're really you're really under undermining uh, your racial purity argument when your icon is a cat lover. I I tend to agree with exactly. that exactly. So, yeah, it, it, so this opinion piece starts off talking about that, kind of giving a a uh, a finger to the alt-right, which is I'm totally fine with. That's great. Those guys suck. I'm all for it. But then it gets into trying to, it basically is retroactively shaming or looking back at her silence over the years and mm-hmm. kind of shaming her for it. Of kind, yeah. of kind of being like, well, you know, the reason why she wasn't speaking up and saying things earlier is because she cared too much about not alienating her fan base and this, that, and the other thing. And and it gave a, a longer uh, excerpt of her statement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, listen to this. She wrote, I believe that the systemic racism we still see in this country towards people of color is terrifying, sickening, and prevalent. Uh, she continued going on to explain why she would not be voting for Republican Marsha Blackburn for Senate. She said her voting record in Congress appalls and terrifies me. She voted against equal pay for women. She voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which attempts to protect women from domestic violence, stalking, and date rape. She believes businesses have a right to refuse service to gay couples. She also believes they should not have the right to marry. Now, my question, and, and it goes on later on to like cite all these statistics. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't know that Taylor Swift like tracked legislation and was into deep statistical research of demographic disparities along racial and sexual orientation. This is totally authored by somebody else, probably by some organization, well, and handed to her. In her original her. statement, because she posted on Instagram, because why not? Right. Um, she didn't have those those citations. She just kind of ranted. Okay. And she, I guess she acknowledged i think a couple bills and that sort of stuff she probably had to look it up before she posted something because she stayed out of politics for her entire career Mm -hmm. which is i mean it's hard for a lot of celebrities in this day and age to do that why well because people have opinions everyone has opinions well sure it's hard for me to stay out of politics and i I didn't work in politics for a very long time, mm-hmm. but it was hard for me because I had opinions and I wanted to voice them. Um, maybe not at work all the time, but these people have a public platform, and I think it's very difficult for celebrities to gauge and to understand and to know where the line is. Where are they? Because they want to use their platform for good and help people. And if they believe that their opinions and their stances are good and they're going to help people, then why not use that platform? But I think on the same side, 
politics is very partisan right now. It's all over the place. And there's so many people across the board who are trying to help people. I mean, we have very different ideas on how to do that. Um, and that's what makes it murky. But I think all celebrities have to have to go through that process where they have to try to gauge where that line is and where they step in. And some are way more vocal than others. And I'm of the camp, and I know this isn't as popular, but I'm of the camp that I, I don't I don't care about their political stances. I don't care how they use their platform. Um, she also said in her statement about uh, registering to vote, sure. and I think having young people engaged and registered to vote and I don't want to use the word civic duty because I don't believe yeah. that's what voting is. But if people are engaged, if they want to be a part of the process and they have opinions and they're getting involved, I think that's a good thing. See, my my thing is, is I, I'm with you in terms yeah. of valuing her opinion. I could care less. You know, it, it, it's if, if she if she wants to spout off about politics and she actually cares about it, that's fine. Yeah. She has she has the right to use her platform however she's, she sees fit. The reason why I'm paying this any attention at all, because normally this type of thing I wouldn't, mm-hmm. is because I get the sense that this is less her and more people around her and the pressure she's been under from the left I to think so. take a stance. I know for a very long time on a lot of issues um, that especially leftist activists use, um, she's been pressured a lot to make statements and very fervently to come in support of things. Um, and I know that she stayed silent. And I think that's unfair. We can't assume that everyone's going or demand that everyone uses their platform right. and their celebrity in the way that we want them to. And that's very much like this op-ed at the Daily Beast is very much written in that vein. Yeah. And the way that her... her breaking her political silence the way it was framed was kind of like this finally she's she's rising to the occasion she's answering the call to do what she should have been doing all along and, which is granted leasing out her platform to the left well and the thing is this happened a couple of years ago uh during the whole um kesha court situation when she was suing her um producer um because she, he sex sexually assaulted her and uh because I know this, uh, Demi Lovato got really mad at uh, Taylor Swift because Taylor Swift was very silent mm-hmm. on the whole situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, another celebrity, Demi Lovato, who's in the same age bracket, very similar fan bases, uh, she called out Taylor Swift saying, you're not doing enough because you're not using your platform. Um, but what came out afterwards was Taylor Swift donated a huge chunk of money Two, and she gave Kesha a huge chunk of money so then she wouldn't have to worry about the, the court fees and the attorney fees. Um, so she was helping in the way that she saw fit. It seems almost as if, you know, we talk a lot about virtue signaling nowadays. Yes. It seems almost as if virtue signaling is is more than just look at me, look at me, that it actually serves a defensive mm-hmm purpose that you have to signal your lefty virtues in order to defend yourself from accusations of not caring or not doing enough or you know somehow being exploitive because all these people are paying you money for the thing that you produce that they think has value that's somehow exploitive even though yeah. you, you never pointed a gun taylor swift never forced anybody to buy a cd or to buy a track on itunes but 
You know, it's, yeah. it's somehow illegitimate for her to just do that. Mm-hmm. She has to, in order to justify being rich and successful, she has to also use her platform to advocate for leftist causes. Well, we- she has, uh, if you go to the Country Music Museum in Nashville, there's an entire exhibit basically dedicated to Taylor Swift's philanthropy. It's like she has that exhibit because she donated it and it's re- related to music education and education for young kids as a whole. She does things outside of politics that I think lefties would agree with. But because she hasn't come out and worn the label that says, I'm a Democrat, it's okay, right. they come after her. Well, and that that just goes to the point of it's not enough to do good things, to do nice things for people and to and to actually be humble about it and not be, look at me, look at me, look at my virtue. They, for In order to get the credit and in order to defend herself, she has to make sure that she shoots the flare up in the sky. Well, and we see this across the board. So I'm someone that I have, I'm friends with so like a bunch of Democrats. Most of the people I interact with are not conservative or right-leaning. Um, and... I'm always like the token Republican friend where I get a lot of credit. But if there's ever an issue where if I don't make specifically a a post or something on social media, then I get like I get talked to and I get crap from certain liberal friends saying, why didn't you say this? Why aren't you calling this out? Why aren't you doing this? And I can't. First of all. I choose how I use my platform. That's right. Same as Taylor Swift. Right. I identify. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, but the thing is, we see this. I have to constantly apologize. I don't get to choose how and when I speak up. Mm-hmm. I'm not not speaking up because of political reasons, or I'm not I'm not speaking up because of political reasons. Like that's not why I say things. I say things because I have a feeling about him, and then I treat right. him. And but you're not allowed to do that, and that's no. kind of the whole point. You're, you're, and it goes back to how we started the show. The, there is no actual respect for what women think on their own mm-hmm. and want to say on their own, and the values they prioritize on their own. It's, it's here's your cookie cutter of what you're supposed to think, feel, and say, mm-hmm. and why aren't you doing it? When the Keith Ellison allegations came out, I was very angry, um, and. I tweeted a couple times about it, more than a couple times, <laughs> but um, I had so many leftists on Twitter come after me, say, well, why didn't you call out this thing? Why didn't you call out this thing? And it's like, I had to give them reasons. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or like, like evidence that I did, but that's not, that's not how it works. That's right. I'm angry because an elected official abused women. That's right. That's what I'm angry at. And he has a history of abuse and I'm not allowed to be angry at him. The only reason, the only way that I'm allowed to be angry at Keith Ellison, if I'm angry at everyone that they've accused. Right. Yeah. You've got to go down the list of, you know, go through the phone book of every man who's done something horrible and be angry at him first before you get to say anything about Keith Ellison. Allie Eichmann in studio with us, 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. In studio, we have Allie Eichmann, Republican woman, American woman, 
and with us. She's been sharing her perspective on this political moment in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. While we've been talking here, Karen Monahan, the accuser of Keith Ellison, Ellison, of course, was just evoked here on the program, had a couple of tweets she put out that are apropos to what we've been discussing. She tweeted, we tell women to break their silence, then we smear them victim shame and blame them if their candidate loses an election have they thought to ask the candidate why they put their seat in jeopardy or why did they abuse another human that's that's a pretty solid point that she continued because i had the courage to break my silence i'm not i'm now being told it's my fault if keith's opponent wins i'm accused of working with his opponent to bring him down basically be silent we don't care about your humility or your humanity hypocrisy at its finest so that's that's karen monahan continuing to defend herself continuing to point out the hypocrisy of her own party and her own side when it comes to this as the woman in the room as (laughs) as the american woman your thoughts on karen monahan in particular and what she finds herself going through so this isn't a partisan issue this is what most women experience maybe not Abuse like Karen Monahan has, but this sort of mentality um, where if you speak out, if you say anything, it's your fault if anything bad happens to that guy. So a, a very general example is if someone's bothering you and harassing you in the workplace as a woman and a man is harassing you and you say anything. And he, he gets any sort of consequence or people talk about it. There's gossip, anything you're blamed. Well, why didn't he not harass me? Right. Uh, so we see this across the board. And what's happening is now that the Me Too movement exists, we are seeing women empowered and banning, coming together and saying, we're not taking this anymore we're not alone. We have all of us together. Um, it's very Beyonce girl power. Mm-hmm. And then we have these political operatives and these politicians who are accused and who have done things. And the ones with the largest egos are the ones that refuse to step down, to let it go. And uh, everything that Karen Monahan has said in regards to Keith Ellison makes a lot of sense. Um, and... It's it's disgusting to me what the DFL is doing, that they're completely trying to sweep it under the rug and trying to get him elected. It, it's particularly odd in the, the context of these past couple of weeks where they've been pushing this narrative on Brett Kavanaugh and applying a 180 degree opposite standard to how we're supposed to perceive the, the Kavanaugh accusation versus the Ellison accusation. And the thing is, it's because of how they handled it in the beginning that the DFL can't, like, they put themselves in a very difficult situation. Immediately, they defended, supported, or kept silent on everything in regards to these allegations about Keith Ellison. Allie Eichmann with the final word this hour. We'll be back after your top of the hour news. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 
streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. Our channel will pop up there for you. You can also check out our Facebook page, Closing Argument with Walter Hudson. Look it up. Like it. Set yourself to be notified when we post things. We appreciate it. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Just said goodbye to Allie Eichmann. She was in here for the first hour to give us a Republican female perspective on this political moment in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation and all of the high drama that surrounded it. Let's go to Dan in Hopkins on that topic. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. You know, uh, the Me Too movement, you know, it's certainly justified, but they certainly leave out in many cases a conservative woman. If she had, in, in, you know, in, in the whole political process, on, the, on national media, it's a conservative women who has opposing views to the left. They're left out. And a prime example of that, probably that which, which is largely unknown, is Donna Bergstrom, the running mate of Jeff Johnson for lieutenant governor. Okay. Native, part Native American was not um, was rejected from a show on Wisconsin Public Radio. She tried to talk to this guy. His name is uh, uh, Henry uh, Henry Banks of People of Color a weekly program that explores issues involving people of color in the Twin Ports. Mm-hmm. But once he found out she was a conservative Republican, he wouldn't have her on the show. It's amazing how that works, so huh? I'm thinking, I, I talked to Brad, I think it would be a wonderful thing if he had Donna on. She's retired military. She'd be the first retired military woman to be a lieutenant governor in Minnesota history. Well, there you and go. She's yeah. also native, and she's, uh, she was worked in intelligence for 20 years for the Marines. And uh, exceptional lady, you know, conservative Christian woman. And so um, hopefully that will happen. You can have her on. And, yeah, appreciate and, the uh, suggestion. It's I, I have to confess it's not a direction I would have uh, thought of on my own, so I appreciate the suggestion and will pursue it because I, has she cool. done much media? She's done some, okay. but she needs to do a lot more. Yeah. She's very well-spoken, just really well Highly educated, just really a wonderful lady, family, a husband and a young son, and live up near Duluth, so mm-hmm. she does make a lot of trips down here. Just a very common person, very humble, and uh, just really sharp lady. Yeah. Well, I appreciate yeah. it, Dan. Appreciate the yeah. thoughts and, and that, that story. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's indicative of what we were talking about last hour with Ellie Eichmann, this, this idea that, you know, the... Consider the arrogance involved in this modus operandi by the left. They claim to care so much. Like this all happens in the under the pretense of sympathy and compassion and empathy and feeling and respect for lived experiences and respect for people's truth, for your truth. That's the pretense under which all this occurs and then within that context they have the audacity to both claim to speak on behalf of all women or all black people or all gays or all fill in the blank minority status they speak for everyone in a particular category 
define what the thought ought to be, what the platform ought to be, what the stances need to be in order to qualify as a legitimate represent, representative of that minority group. And then for the individuals of which there are many who say, you know, I've got a different perspective on that. My experience has been different. My truth is different than your truth. I have a different point of view. For all of those people, they get marginalized. They get shamed. They get pushed off to the side because they are inconvenient. And this this really is a large part of what fuels the walk away movement. Brandon Straka has has been the leading the way on this. And the the walk away hashtag and the videos and the testimonials and the stories that have come out of that movement are indicative of this type of experience where person after person is coming forward and saying and sharing their stories of how they personally have been marginalized by the left, how they've been told to get into the back of the proverbial bus, the rhetorical bus, and to keep silent, to keep quiet. And you, your opinion doesn't count because you're not supporting our cause. You're not supporting our narrative. And what it betrays, what it reveals is that the truth is it's all a lie. Everything from from word one, from the first claim dropped by the left that they care about minorities, that they care about blacks and women and gay people and you know and Native Americans, whatever the case may be. It's a total lie from word one. They don't care at all. They only care about power. They only care about their agenda. They only care about doing whatever it takes in order to seize power and in order to affect what they what they want in terms of a social justice revolution. And that bears out in the overall reaction that we see uh, coming out of the Brett Kavanaugh situation that has opened so many people's eyes and is really shifting the polls in the direction of Republicans and the direction of Donald Trump. It's got me putting on a MAGA hat. And in this context, I'd like to touch back upon what uh, Brad and Max Reimer were talking about last night when they had Students for Liberty in. And the the conversation turned in this direction of the lived experience of the of the libertarians who were in here from the University of Minnesota. And the, the question that was raised, I believe Max was the one who initiated it, was, you know, what's it been like for you to be on campus as a non-leftist, basically, as a libertarian? You know, how are you experiencing this political moment whereby it's very it's very much us or them? It's very confrontational. It seems as though you you're being forced to pick a side and the response from the guests was something to the i'm paraphrasing of course something to the effect of that hasn't been our experience we've had very cordial relationships we've been able to forge alliances on particular causes and there really just doesn't seem to be this this kind of uh, standoffish dichotomy you know you're either with us or you're with them that's that max is describing that i've described on this show brad you were there you were hosting what was your your take on am i paraphrasing it correctly is the question i'm asking you're right and i like being involved in the same organization when i was in college i experienced the same thing there was next to no one maybe a few here and there who i knew would rabble rouse about the issue that were that were willing to get mean about it but otherwise, it was just like, what's a libertarian? I don't even know what that is. So I I know where you're going. And I've been thinking about it all day. Because when I saw your tweet, my reaction was just like, oh, Walter's like, he's insulting my soul here. But that's like, 
there, but I, I agree that that is the probably likely experience because I experienced the same. So here's the thing, like, hey, and I understand your reaction, but what you, what you got to understand about me, and I don't know where Max is coming from. He he describes himself as being libertarian leaning or having come from a from a libertarian ideological background. I don't know his whole story in terms of where he's coming from. I do, however, know my own story. I do, however, know my own lived experience. And I have identified as a libertarian. I still consider myself to be a libertarian. That is one who pursues and advocates for liberty, who wants to see liberty affected through public policy. And as as such, you know, I've served, I was the vice chair of the Republican Liberty Caucus. You know, I've, I've acted in other capacities. I've been the, the chair of some Tea Party organizations and have pursued joint ventures with Democrats on issues where I agreed with them when it comes to things like criminal justice and, and the like, the treatment of, of ex-felons and, and what have you. So I can relate to this, what you're talking about, this, this notion of being able to find some sort of common ground, um, being, a, being able to have friends who are from the other side of the aisle and to, to be able to see the humanity uh, in, in a Democrat, in somebody who identifies as being left-wing, and I get all of that. My experience has been that that has changed, that has shifted in a very visceral way. It is so much more difficult for me to have a cordial conversation with somebody who is a Democrat or somebody who, who leans left today than it has been in my memory. It's extraordinarily difficult to have a cordial conversation because we, we find ourselves in this moment where the stakes have been raised so high. You know, the question that came to my mind when I was listening to you guys last night was because, you know, there's this, they're having this event, Students for Liberty's having this event where they're going to talk about the drug war. The question that came to my mind was, why do I even care about the drug war right now? Why do I even care about legalizing marijuana in a context where the, the people who I have to ally with in order to pursue that are actively advocating for abolishing the, the Senate and the Electoral College and questioning the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and is saying that the, the Republic is illegitimate and that we, we can't have civility. We haven't even gotten to that yet. Hillary Clinton said we can't have civility until Democrats win election again and take the majority back. Like in, in that context, the importance of something like being able to smoke weed fades into the background, even for me, even for somebody who does care about that sort of thing. Well, SFL is a 501c3, so they're not pursuing sure. the same political ends that you might be or that that idea might be in your head. And for SFL as an organization, I think there is that coalition building, and that is the idea—the the idea that yes, we can participate in politics as an as an idea or the ideas of politics and sway the conversation, and not it's a it's a pre political pre political philosophy is mm -hmm. what I would say. Yeah, and so to and from SFL's perspective as a still new organization, it's been around for almost 10 years now, but it's kind of a marketing funnel. They are casting a wide net now with their ideas ultimately, but there's, you know, there's going to be people there. When I went to the SFL event, when I was in college, there was people like Tom Woods was there. He was at the table right next to us and right. there was Yale and there was uh foundation for economic education. 
So ultimately, people coming to these events and kind of at the bottom of the marketing funnel is this libertarian ideal. Mm-hmm. And so they're hoping to cast a wide amount of people so that they can expose students who might be more liberal to the ideas of ult- ultimately like F- to F.A. Hayek, to Milton Friedman, to uh, to the large to An- to Ayn Rand. There's a you know there's a larger goal at play. There's an idea at the bottom of the funnel, you could say. Mm-hmm. And so if people are taking things, uh, that you know taking things from SFL and doing their own thing, that's that's okay too. That's a worthy cause. But ultimately, they know that a few people will uh, come to the idea, even if they weren't such. Even if they're just interested in an idea like the drug war and they don't really lean left or right, they're just like, oh, yeah, like legalizing marijuana sounds like a good idea. Let me check these guys out. Yeah, I get. I guess from the perspective of being a 501c3 and therefore being limited in terms of what your objectives can be and basically being focused on issues and focused on you know trying to, to advance ideas in the culture rather than necessarily pushing for a, a particular political agenda, it makes sense that you would be as nonpartisan as possible and try to try to cast a wide net. I guess what I'm coming at the direction I'm coming at it from is similar to what Max was articulating last night is that when I look back upon my experiences where I have allied with Democrats to one extent or another in order to advance a cause that I believed in, whether it was criminal justice reform or restoring the vote to, to people who are, have reentered society after being incarcerated uh, or whatever the case may be, they're more than happy to use me. They're more than happy to have me come along in order to lend their cause in a veneer of bipartisanship. But there is no there there is no like currency earned. There's no I don't get any cachet as a result of having done that. Like they they will discard me immediately after my usefulness in that particular area has been fulfilled. That's fair, but Republicans do the same thing. As a libertarian and as someone who has, uh, you know, worked with both, tried to work with both Democrats and Republicans and worked in SFL and worked in libertarian organizations outside of SFL, both Republicans and Democrats, I, I expect that from Democrats. I do. But... When it comes time to work with the Republican Party, the Republican Party is almost more spiteful about it. Like I was saying, or more insulting about it, you could say. Like I was saying last last week about the effectiveness of the Libertarian Party. It's like, okay, I'm you know the Libertarian Party is kind of just a bunch of idiots. They're gonna fail, and I know that Democrats are ultimately gonna distrust me and go against what I'm saying. I, I expect that. But with Republicans, it's like. It's like going out with a girl that's like, oh, yeah, I really like you. Like, you know, I see this going further. And then it's like, so, you know, do you want to, like, make this Facebook official? Do you want to kind of take the next step in our relationship? And they're like, what are you talking about? I like this person. Like, no, we're just friends. You're being gaslit. Yeah, Yeah. you're essentially being gaslit. and, uh, And it's insulting because... It they treat us with kid gloves, or like we ultimately just get relegated to the kids' table in the in the political world when we have legitimate ideas and often are on the cutting edge of political thought. You think like when gay marriage was uh, upheld by the Supreme Court, what five six years ago now? Libertarians were like, "Hi, hello, we've been talking about this since the '80s," and 
So it's kind of they they just take everyone just kind of comes into libertarian ideas, takes what they want, uh, poses as their own, and then we're like, oh look at us, we're so great, we're so good. Uh, look, we Republicans we supported lower taxes. Oh Democrats, we've been for all these social freedoms when libertarians have been there all along for thirty years or more. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. That's Brad Omlin. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Twin Cities News Talk Newt Gingrich said some things that uh, raised my eyebrows, and The Atlantic has taken them to task for it. And, you know, at first, when you see a lefty publication like The Atlantic going after Newt Gingrich, you kind of gird yourself around, okay, what's this going to be? What kind of illegitimacy am I about to to consume here? But, I mean, they've pretty much got them dead to rights on this one. And uh, this is going to push the limits or show you that merely putting on a MAGA hat doesn't make you a a uh, dyed-in-the-wool cult of personality team player on every given statement because this stuff that Gingrich is saying right here is pretty ludicrous. We'll get to it here after a couple of phone calls. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Let's go to Colin in Bloomington. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, so I guess um, regarding not necessarily libertarianism, uh, small L libertarianism, but at least big L libertarianism within the party. Yeah, I think one of my biggest issues with them, at least more recently, and it, it could, this could be driven by, you know, someone who's just not really good on social media or shouldn't be in charge of it. But I've seen on a lot of libertarian pages that I like and follow, I, I mean, uh, it's the the ideological purity standards, like. You know, it, it seems like they're going more and more towards all-out anarcho-capitalism, uh, and not. I mean, you know, I, I I'm somewhere between a classical liberal and a minarchist, and it's truly a constitutionalist. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I don't have a home in the Libertarian Party because I don't want to completely absolve our borders, and, and I, don't know, I just I feel like, and especially for a party that has such a hard time really gaining any kind of traction and getting any market share, if you will, in the electorate, mm-hmm. the, the cannibalism that you see going on with these people, they're, oh, well, you're, you're not a real libertarian right. if you don't believe right. in X, Y, Z, which is, at that point, part of that full-on, full-blown anarcho-capitalism. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty self-defeating. I appreciate your thoughts, and I uh, agree to a large extent. Colin, I appreciate you calling in the program. Yeah, you know, th- that is the problem, and that's why th- that distinction between big L, small L, I think, is a legitimate one, and I very much would consider myself to be a small L libertarian. Again, libertarian in the sense, in the pure dictionary definition of the word, I advocate for the condition of liberty. I believe that human beings have a rightful claim to their own lives and ought to be able to own themselves, that they are slaves to no one, and that we ought to get to define our own values and pursue them as we see fit, so long as we don't violate the rights of others. If you agree with that, you're a small-l libertarian, regardless of what else you call yourself, or regardless for what party you vote for or caucus with or whatever the case may be. The problem with big L libertarians, as Colin was pointing out there, or the Libertarian Party and the way libertarianism has been pursued in this kind of third-party uh, mode over the years is exactly what Colin describes. It's 
this notion the 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 response that you get which i hate when i hear this but i understand it when people say well libertarians are just you know high school intellectuals who never got over debate club you know or or college students who never grew up who never came to realize what life is like in the real world i hate that line of thought or that style of criticism because it it puts forward a claim that isn't true and that dismisses it's kind of like you know calling somebody a racist or calling somebody a name you're just shutting down the debate by dismissing them or minimizing them the fact of the matter is there is nothing precisely nothing impractical about liberty 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 works Liberty is the only thing that's practical. It's the only thing that's moral. It's the only thing that works in the real world. And, and so there, there should be no, there should be and is no conflict between the, the advocacy for liberty and how things work in the real world. The problem is, is that when you, when it comes to politics and this, this duty to persuade, this necessity to persuade, that's where the big L libertarians find themselves banging their heads up against the wall and, and not really being able to accomplish much of anything because there's this, there's this skip past the obligation to persuade straight to the demand for political alignment. And, and that's kind of, kind of what Colin is speaking to there of you know, the cannibalism of, the, the guy who wants to run as a libertarian candidate for whatever office isn't libertarian enough. Or the guy who wants to cheer the, the state party for libertarians isn't libertarian enough. Or you, as a, as a interested, curious activist or potential voter, aren't libertarian enough, so you can't be part of the club. Well, you, you, you need to, in order to be able to practice that type of, of association leverage where, where you, you get to, kick people out, like call people rhinos. This would be the equivalent in the Republican Party. When Republicans are accused of being rhinos, the the reason why that has weight is because to be associated with Republicans actually has value politically. You can't do that as a libertarian, as a member of the Libertarian Party. You can't call somebody a lino because it doesn't that doesn't matter. Like there's no actual value there in terms of being considered part of the like for a if, a if the libertarian party kicks you out you're in some ways potentially better off than you were before at least politically speaking and so this is what the 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 folks who find themselves as big l libertarians need to come to terms with is the notion that you first have to persuade which it strikes me as extraordinarily ironic that libertarians the big l libertarians don't seem to understand that because you would think it flows naturally from libertarian philosophy that persuasion is your mode of operation in a context where you cannot use force. We'll come back to Barry and St. Paul when we return. Appreciate your holding. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omelin taking those calls and producing the show. Let's go to Barry in St. Paul. Thanks for holding. Isn't the real problem when you start talking politics because we only really have 
choices between Republicans and Democrats. Is it the real problem that the Republicans are just slow walking us towards what the Democrats are running us towards? I don't understand. At least as a party, there are individuals inside the Republican Party that are libertarian, that are trying to do the right thing, but as a whole, they can't even do what they said they will do. I, I think that's largely true, uh, particularly when it comes to matters of fiscal policy and the debt and the deficit and entitlement and the, the overall growth of government. You're definitely correct on that point. Well, I, and, and isn't that a, a function of them being in the government, running the government? That's why the libertarians so, so what's the, the solution the can say what they want to say because they really aren't a big part of it. Right, but they, okay, so but this is my problem, Barry is that if our task is to actually change public policy, you have to get into government. Like, that's how it changes. So... I, I, I agree, but the Libertarian Party, right, is yeah. about, about having not, not having government as, as a whole, well, or smaller government. But how do you become part of a government agency or an agency or an apparatus that you don't agree with? You know what I mean? That's what I don't understand. That's why, like, some of the people that Trump appointed to office are department heads mm-hmm. that didn't agree with the department itself. Right. How do they run a department? Right. Well, I mean, I think we've seen that they can. Because, see, look, the, first of all, if when you, get, when you get down to the level of a department or a particular agency and it's something that, that should not exist, I think that the proper thing to do is not just uh, to man it or or put somebody in charge of it who doesn't like it but to actually abolish it and i i wish that trump had the courage of his convictions or at least the courage of of uh more conventional republican fiscal conservative small government convictions and would actually move to i mean you want to talk about draining the swamp actually abolish an agency actually get rid of a department actually fire a whole bunch of government workers and don't replace them that would drain the swamp pretty quick I agree, but that's never going to happen by anybody because, really, the Republicans are just playing to a different constituency. They have different people they're beholden to and that they have to get money to out stuff that's going to happen, just like the Democrats. It's just different groups of people. So what's the solution? There isn't one, not a right one, not an east one. The, 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 The solution is solar flare and cook everything to start over. Because then everybody has to deal with consequences that nobody caused. Yeah, but, well, I, I but hate... That, but that's not going to happen. So Yeah, well, I, I, we seems like we've come full circle back around to where we started. I appreciate the call as always, Barry. And that's just it, is in order to have that type of a, a reset, something horrible would have to happen. Like something truly catastrophic that, that literally sent us back technologically and socially you know, push the reset button in a, in a real and tangible and catastrophic way in order for us to kind of relearn how to exist in the wild or relearn how to exist in nature. And I'm, I'm just not up for that. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the best path forward. And the beauty of our system and granted the, the malleability of our constitutional Republic our constitutional republic has become much more brittle and much more fragile over the years than how it started because those mechanisms, the very same things that the likes of Ocasio-Cortez 
and Eric Holder and Hillary Clinton and the left more generally, the very same things that they're bemoaning today in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, things like the the Senate being an equal representation of each state, two senators for each state of all 50 states, things like the Electoral College uh, and, and other historical checks and balances and separations of powers, our Republican structure as a nation, that, that separation and division of power kind of interacts almost like tectonic plates whereby there's a there's an ability for f- political forces to slide past each other and to bend and to give but not break and that is why our government our constitution our republic has endured for as long as it has we are weird we are unusual it is not normal historically or geographically for a for a country to endure for two three centuries without some sort of major catastrophic upheaval a revolution you know we had a civil war but the union endured right that it's strange in history that we have endured as long as we have without some sort of major catastrophic undoing of what had been laid down and the reason for that is because of the wisdom of our founding fathers, the, the wisdom of laying out a system that had this give and this take that could endure shifts and changes and political winds without breaking. The question becomes, have we reached a point past which, you know, have, have those, those checks and balances and those mechanisms that were designed to, to be deliberate and to channel the passions of the mob and what have you, have they eroded to the point or calcified to the point where it can't take the stress any longer? And it seems, it feels, you know, you you hear this. I was listening to Justice and Drew, the replay on my way into the station tonight, and they were talking about this. They were talking with, with Pete Hegseth about how it very much, there's this sense in the air, this feeling in the air that something is happening. Something analogy that the what they compared it to the analogy they used was like 1958 and going into the 60s, a time of strife during which there were political assassinations and major upheaval in the streets. It feels like we're about to endure something like that again. And the question becomes, how bad is it going to get? Is it going to get worse than it was in the past? I mean, about to, I would say we're already there, but when. Democrats kind of made their own bed and laid in it in the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings because, and what I glean from what you're saying is that good process makes good policy or worthwhile process makes worthwhile policy. And I am just shocked by Democrats' inability to see the Kavanaugh confirmation from beginning to end as anything more than their own fault for right. ending the 60-vote rule in the Senate. Right. None yes, of it right. would have been possible Correct. or necessary right. if, they would have ch- if they wouldn't have changed the rules. Kavanaugh may not have gotten 60 votes before the sexual assault allegations came out. Right. You could have relied on the checks and balances within the system to accomplish your end right then and there. Right, and, and that's the thing is they, they are the ones... The left is the side, and this this is not just you know partisan rhetoric. Factually, objectively, you, this is undeniable. 
all of the erosion of those checks and balances over the past 100 years has come from the political left. They're the ones who wanted to see the Senate be a, a, a popularly elected as opposed to being representative of the state legislatures. They're the ones who, as Brad points out, are the ones who got rid of the, of the 60 vote supermajority process for confirming uh, nominees to the Supreme Court. And, and it's those choices were born from the same style of argument that they're employing now to argue against the Senate as such and to argue against the Electoral College. And it always comes down to the two-year-old tantrum version of an argument, which is, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And by whatever means necessary, I am going to get. And they're, they're willing to throw out these pillars of a constitutional republic in order to achieve their their political goals and as a result they're undermining the the resiliency of the nation itself and that's putting us in a very dangerous position 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is walter Hudson, twin cities news talk am 1130 fm twin I have put on the MAGA hat, much to the surprise, celebration, and dismay of various onlookers. And, you know, we went into detail. I did, you know, basically a whole show last week getting into why I've made this choice, what informed the shift, the context that has changed, and also what has not changed. And one of the things that has not changed is that, you know, I still am going to call things as I see them. When I see somebody come out, you know, who, who's a Republican, who's on the team, who says something ridiculous, I am still going to call it ridiculous, and I'm still going to push back against it. And we have an example of that here with Newt Gingrich, who, you know, generally speaking, I like Newt Gingrich. I don't have a huge problem with Newt Gingrich. You know, him and I don't align on everything, but that's true of me and virtually every Republican. You know, you're never going to find people who you agree with 100% on every area. Newt Gingrich is probably like a, I don't know, 65, 65-35 split in terms of, you know, things that we agree and disagree on, probably less than that even. But he's still in my favorable category. I still like the guy. But this this latest spiel that he went on about Muslims is really beyond the pale. And it it makes anything that Donald Trump has said in the past look very tame by comparison. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. So this is what he said. He said, let me be as blunt and direct as I can be. He said this during a, a news interview, I guess. Western civilization is in a war. We should frankly test every person here who is of a Muslim background, and if they believe in Shiara, they should be deported. He said this while on Fox News. He continued, Shiara is incompatible with Western civilization. Modern Muslims who have given up Shiara, glad to have them as citizens, perfectly happy to have them next door. Gingrich continued by saying that anyone who visited a website associated with ISIS or Al-Qaeda should be prosecuted as a felon. Now, every every aspect of this is off the rails, right? Like, okay, so first of all, 
let's even if you accept the logic, even if you think this is a good idea, if you're all in, if you think, yeah, finally somebody's saying it, some this is what should happen. How is this test going to work? You tell me, and this is the same criticism I have with you know because because Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign, of course, famously proposed his Muslim ban on banning people from entering the country if they are Muslim. To which my practical criticism, you know, setting aside the morality of it, setting aside whether or not we ought to have religious tests as a prerequisite for being an immigrant to this country, my practical question is, how is that going to work? Like, how are you going to determine that somebody is a Muslim? Can't? They, what if they just lie? What if they just say, oh, I converted to Christianity, or I converted to Hinduism, or I'm an atheist, or I'm agnostic, or, you know, I don't really believe in that. Similarly here... If you think it's a good idea to deport people who, quote, believe in Shiara, unquote, how are you going to figure that out? Uh, I'm very curious into how that would even work. And, of course, the notion that you you would do this is pretty ridiculous. Now, if what he actually meant was people who are engaged in activities that are, are objectively terrorist in nature should be prosecuted, should be deported, then that I could get on board with. But that's very, he, if he meant that, he could have said that. Well, it's already happening. We well, see it yeah, in Minnesota. Exactly. Yeah, right. So it's like that. that's not... Obviously, he's proposing a shift from the status quo. Otherwise, what's the point in bringing it up, right? And so you can't give him the benefit of the doubt on that. But then for him to take it further and say that people who visit websites associated with ISIS or Al-Qaeda should be prosecuted as a felon, how is that fundamentally different than throwing somebody in jail for reading a book. How is that fundamentally different from throwing somebody in jail for, for going to the library and, and checking out a book? You know, the, and the notion that because I went to a website, the only possible reason I could have for going to the website is to become a terrorist. Like, what? Like, the, the, so there's no room... For you know, research or for expanding knowledge or for considering new ideas, you know, not not to where do we come up with this notion that you can't read something without agreeing with it? Like, it, how do you ever become educated if you can't read things that you disagree with, or you can't read something and then evaluate it and determine whether or not you agree with it? It's a very dangerous line of thinking. Not something that should be being said by a prominent Republican like Newt Gingrich. And, uh, you know, the type of thing that I will continue to call out as I see it, whether I'm wearing a particular hat or not. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 9 to 11 weeknights. Join us tomorrow. We'll be here for you on a Thursday. Glenn Beck is next. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.